Lord God, we recognize that we are the recipients of many, many good things. We give thanks to you. Our hearts are full of gratitude. When we think about ourselves as the people of the 8th Street Church, we are grateful for this space, for the 8th Street Church herself. We are thankful that you led us here and that an old building has new life. We ask that you would help us as we have prayed from the beginning that we would be able to be a part of an urban building restored. We pray that you would help us live that out to its fullest and that it would not just be about the building itself, but the people around the building. Would you grant us wisdom and creativity to bring the fullness of new life and to steward this space on the corner of 8th and Lee well? We've also known from the beginning that we wanted to be really good and useful neighbors. So we ask that you would make us into the kind of neighbors that we want to be. In fact, would you make us into the kind of neighbors that you have been to us? Would you help us to see the people around us as a neighbor, whether they are around this Sosa neighborhood, whether they are around our own neighborhoods or our workspaces? We pray specifically for the many, many, many who encompass St. Anthony, our nearest neighbor. Even the young woman, Summer, that I spoke to on the phone right before the service, who was calling, asking for help. Would you, would you help us, Lord, know how to be good and useful neighbors to those around us? Would you supply what they need? We've also prayed, Lord, that you would enable us to become a place of connection and community, especially among those who are not like one another. And we rejoice that we see you doing this. But we know that it is not normal in our world where it's normal to divide and keep separate. We pray that your spirit would unify, that you would heal relationships, and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear one another well. And we've always known that we want to be about the business of living the way of Jesus. But we need your help. Empower us, Holy Spirit. Move in us to live your way, to grow into awareness, to receive and offer the healing that you give. And this is what we ask for. And we ask it with expectation and with hope. And we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here at the 8th Street Church, and uh, I've been traveling for a little bit, so it's good to be home. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Over the next few weeks together, we're going to be in 1 and 2 Timothy, and I have some friends who have Bibles, and if you need a Bible, a Bible, they would love to bring you a Bible. Just raise your hand. Somebody will bring you one. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, so this is the translation. Uh, there's some down here. If uh, We even have Bibles in Spanish, so if you're practicing your Spanish, or if your heart language is Spanish, uh, just 
tell, uh, tell one of these folks. And you can have these. Uh, if you don't have one, you can have this. It is our gift to you. If you just need to borrow it, you can leave it on your seat. But I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, 1 Timothy is towards the end of your Bible. You can look in the table of contents if you need to. But here at our church, we, we stand as we honor the reading of God's word. So I invite you to stand this evening. And I invite you to hear the word of the Lord from 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peacefully and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. He gave up his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I am not exaggerating, just telling the truth. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we all say together... Thanks be to God. Let me make a note, if I could, before you sit. The story continues, or the letter continues. It talks about the roles of men and women in the life of the church, and yet we are not talking about that today. Okay, so I invite you to take a seat, if you would. The reason I bring that up is because that is one of the tricky parts of the scripture, uh, last week, Mikhail, uh, Pastor Mikhail reminded us that we are a group of people that are shaped by a larger story that we call the lectionary story. Churches of all types uh, use the re- lectionary readings as part of their worship. They, they take the lectionary readings and they make them a, a centerpiece along with the Eucharist in their worship. Uh, Greek Orthodox churches do this, Catholic churches, Lutheran churches, uh, Anglican churches, Methodist churches, they all do this. We do this. Uh, When we read the text, uh, we let the text and the story that's in the text, when we do this and we let the text shape us, we are actually connecting to a larger global community, somewhat in the same way that you're connecting to a larger global community when you purchase what we, the kinds of things that we have on our seats this evening. Um, reading the lectionary, reading the larger story actually connects us uh, to the larger church, but it also connects us to our heritage and it connects us to one another. So the lectionary is a series of biblical readings that help us walk through what we call salvation history. Salvation history is actually, uh, is, is Jewish history and the emergence of the Christian community that comes out of that story. And the lectionary covers all of the essential or the major parts of that greater Christian, Jewish Christian story, and it does so over a three-year period. Right now we're in what is called year C, And next year, year A actually starts on the first Sunday of Advent, which is on December 1st. Now, I prefer to preach out of the lectionary, not because it is easy, but actually because it is hard. When I'm 
when I'm planning the preaching calendar for any given year, what, what I try to do is I try to hold up the events and the burdens that are taking place, the events that are taking place in the world or in our city or uh, the events that are taking place in your own life. And, and I also hold up the burdens that I know that you all carry. And, and I also hold up the lectionary text. These, these stories, uh, these words that come from the ancients. And, and I, I hold them up and I, and I reflect on all of those together. And I've discovered that kind of in between the three of these things, in that in-between space is where we just might find God and we might find God's direction for us. And it seems that the letters uh, to Timothy from Paul are timely for us as a church because as a church, there is a lot going on. There's a, there's a lot in the works. So we think that First and Second Timothy are timely books for us to read. Maybe even they're providential because these letters are about having what I think is is maybe one of the most significant virtues in the kingdom of God, and, and that is courage. These, these letters are about courage. Now, we're a young church. The 8th Street Church is only about three and a half years old, and I am, I think, still a young pastor. Now, I'm in my 40s, but I'm not a black belt at pastoring yet, so I'm going to put myself in the category of young, Timothy was a young pastor, and his church was a young church. And they were fragile. Kind of like sometimes I feel like we're fragile as a young church. And they were in the midst of significant cultural change, kind of like what is happening to us. We are as well. They were working out how to be the people of God in a day and an age that had unique cultural values and nuances, and so are we. So here we have Paul who's the spiritual father to Timothy, and he writes these two letters. He didn't obviously write them at the same time. We believe that he wrote the first one, received some kind of correspondence, and wrote a second one. And and essentially, when you read these two letters, you, you realize that Paul is trying to teach Timothy how to be a good pastor to this young church. And while this letter was written to Timothy personally, for some reason, over time, the larger churches has grabbed a hold of these two letters and they've claimed it for, the, for themselves. And they've protected them so that we all have the ability to read them. Sometimes they did it at risk of life. So here we are now and we are, we are in a, a unique time as a young church and we've been, we've been asking the question, what does it mean to discern God's direction together? We, we know that we're not interested in making any kind of moves as a church based on our own wisdom, but we're looking to ask more serious God kind of questions. And this is important to us because we've learned that walking with Jesus and living in his way is certainly not for the faint of heart. So let's just admit that there are some hard things in this letter. I already made mention of one. Sometimes Paul's instruction if you continue to read chapter 2, seems chauvinistic and even misogynistic. Uh, the end of First Timothy chapter 2 uh, deals with some of his statements on the ministry of women and men in the life of the church and in worship. But you know what? The lectionary doesn't go there. And I think there's some reasons for that. I think the first reason is this, because the lectionary doesn't think that stuff 
is the most important stuff. And one day I heard this uh, professor of Bible uh, try to explain it this way. He held up a $20 bill and he held up a $100 bill. And he said, now these two bills are valuable. They're both considered money. Anybody would want these two bills. Uh, but, but one simply has more value than the other. And then he, he, he said, now there are some parts of the Bible that, that yes... You know, it's all the word of God and all of it is to be read because all of it is essential. But then there are texts that are actually more essential. And the lectionary seems to kind of follow the track of those texts that are more essential. All of the Bible is essential, but then there are some that are actually more essential. So we grapple with this and we see that the lectionary is directing us to the more essential texts. But here's the second reason. I think that that the more essential stuff drives us to understand the essential stuff. I don't want to say less essential because it's still essential. But the more essential stuff drives us to understand the, the essential stuff. In other words, we understand the essential stuff by what the more essential stuff teaches us. And we do it under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, so it informs those areas that seem difficult to understand or maybe even inconsistent with other parts of Scripture or maybe even Jesus himself. Now, with all that said, I don't think that you'll be surprised that I think that there is more than meets the eye in, uh, in the verses that you find later on in in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I don't think that you'll be surprised that I think there's more than meets the eye in those verses that Pastor Mikhail calls and others call those clobber verses. You know, those verses that you read that make you feel like you got clobbered. Those are the the passages of Scripture that make you feel like you got beat up. So, this week... Mikhail and I are going to write a piece explaining our interpretation, and not just ours, but other scholars as well, and send it out in an e-newsletter why we believe that women have authority and voice in worship in the church, okay? So everybody understand that part so far? So be looking for that later, okay? The clobber texts are, are still essential, and they can leave us unnerved, but But like Mark Twain, it's not the parts of the Bible that are confusing to me that I don't understand that I have problems with. It's actually the parts of the Bible that I do understand that from time to time I have problems with. And that comes in our lectionary reading today. Now I'll admit, I want to walk with Jesus and yet while walking with Jesus and being faithful to his word, I will admit It takes us places and calls us into things that are, to be frank, really uncomfortable and dangerous. And I think the texts that we read today, these seven verses, are some of those texts. Some of those texts that the lectionary includes are just as hard as the ones that the lectionary skips. And I think the one that we read today is one of those. But the good news is this, that Jesus promises that those of us who are weak need are just the right candidates for new life that comes in the Spirit. In fact, he promises that those are just the kind of people that will receive power to be his witnesses of the good news. And the good news is, as we've said time and time again, 
is, that is reinforced by Paul, the good news is for, it's for everybody. He says it in this text. So I'll just tell you that Paul's instruction to Timothy and his young church is our call. And it's this one. It's a dangerous one. And it can be very hard. Here it comes. This is our call. And the call is to pray. Paul says you need to pray for any, everyone. And he doesn't waste time teaching Timothy or us how to pray or when to pray as if there is one time or one way that's better than another. He just says, just, just do it. And unlike other passages and other letters that Paul writes, he's not artsy or poetic. He's more like, he's more like a plumber in this, in this passage. He just get the job done. Just pray. And the job that Timothy is commanded to do as the pastor and the job that every Christian is commanded to do is to pray. And Paul says you need to pray prayers of supplication. Now, supplication are those prayers that are of an urgent nature. And I, I get this. Sometimes I hear people say, I'll be praying for you. And most of the time, I don't really believe that they're doing. Because when I say that, in the past, uh, I would completely forget. That is my confession to you. So what I started doing is I started to keep, I started to keep a little book. And it's super private to me. Nobody else has seen what's in this book. And after I have spirit-led conversations, I'll write about it in this book. And I'll tell you what, every once in a while, about once or twice a week, I will flip through this book and I'm praying for custody battles and new jobs and wayward children and people trying to kick drug habits and people healing for people that have been sexually assaulted and mental health issues and in a variety of, of other kinds of situations. Situations that are super serious. And, and I'll have you know, me and God have had some serious discussions about things that are written in this book. That's what prayers of supplication are. And Paul says you should pray prayers of supplication. Be really serious. Be urgent. Pray for the urgent. But he also says you need to pray prayers of intercession. And these are the prayers that we pray uh, where we think about our, the needs of, that we have or the loved ones that we have when they're in need. You know, grandma's heal when, when she's not feeling so good. If the arthritis is getting to her again, it's the one that goes on the whiteboard in the Sunday school room, you know. Or a college decision or sometimes guidance to make a good decision between two good options. And Paul says, you need to pray prayers of intercession. And then he says, above all, you need to be praying prayers of thanksgiving. Those are the prayers that come after you realized how, how blessed you've been. Pastor Mikhail said, name one really good thing that you've experienced in the last, in the last few minutes or the last few hours or the last few days. It, it's the prayers that you pray when something has gone right or a miracle or a healing has occurred or forgiveness and reconciliation has happened. And Paul says, pray those prayers of thanksgiving. Now, I pray these prayers all the time. But you know what? I have not made it a practice to pray like Paul instructs here in this passage. Because Paul instructs Timothy, and then in turn, he instructs the church to pray prayers of supplication, intercession, and even thanksgiving for everyone and especially for those who gulp 
are in positions of authority. Now, I will admit to you, I would rather do just about anything else than pray for those people. You know, over the last number of years, we have been a church that has attempted to speak prophetically about issues related to power and the abuse of power. We've talked about empire games, and we've said these kinds of games are not the way of the kingdom of God. And I'll be just uh, just downright honest with you. I get very upset when I see leaders and leaders of the church that are silent when injustices take place. And I, I swore to myself, if, if a new church emerges out of the dream that I thought that God was dreaming, we will be faithful to speak to injustice. So over the last three and a half years, we have criticized and critiqued. And I even think the lectionary has led us in that way. But then there, we have texts like this that take us in a direction that is really, for me, uncomfortable. It calls us to pray. And yeah, everybody knows that, but it calls us to pray for those who are in authority. And my American individualistic and wounded heart just can't take that. I'm one of the most privileged people I know, but even, but even I have had people in my life that have used their authority to hurt me. And, and I have said, even with that in mind, I've said many, many times that I believe that the loving hospitality of God is for everyone. But what, I, I, what, what I've come to realize that I mean is the loving hospitality of God is for everyone I like. <clears throat> and so I've been outspoken about people in authority. I've tried to tell the truth. I think that is part of the truth telling that comes with being a pastor. And you know that I haven't held back when it comes to decisions about what I think are decisions of injustice. I, I've even spoken out about some of the decisions of our current administration and other things. But I'm coming to the conclusion that to be prophetic without prayer is not living the way of Jesus. It's not fully living into the way of Jesus. And right there is the controversy. Because the way of Jesus is the gospel. And Paul is clear. It is for everyone, not just the people I like. A huge price has been paid. God's grace isn't cheap. It's actually quite costly. So Paul says to Timothy, start praying from the top down. And I guess that makes sense because those in authority have the, uh, have the power to bring help or they have the power to bring heartache to those who are under their care. The early church fathers found, uh, found that the way they fought for justice was to pray for those who were in authority. I've got a picture of some of those. Titus, Clement of Alexandria, Polycarp of Smyrna, Tertullian, John Chrysostom. They all insisted that believers should pray for those in authority from the top to the bottom. And they were all clear. In a world where Caesar was given the title Savior of the world and was considered Lord and God, these monotheistic Jews of the early church that had, that had embraced Jesus of Nazareth as, as the one true God were clear in their conviction that those, in the, in, those that were in authority were to be prayed for, not prayed to. So they said, pray for your leaders. Pray for those who are in authority. 
And Paul, as he writes this, actually leans really deep into his Jewish heritage when he gives this instruction. While the people of God were in exile after uh, 583 BC, Jeremiah the prophet not only spoke against Babylon, he was a prophet that spoke about the injustices of Babylon, but then he encouraged the people of God to begin to pray for Babylon. Because as he said, their welfare, the the welfare of the people of God would be reflected in the welfare of the city. If the city does better, then they will be better. This is the same thing that the reformer John Calvin insisted his students to do. He said, even when the ruler is unjust, the church prays to God to make bad men good. Now, I've been, I've been thinking, and I don't want to sugarcoat it, but, but I don't think that praying for those in authority is the easiest thing to do. In fact, I think the invitation to Timothy and now the invitation to us is actually one of the most difficult things to do. But it is a way to live into the cruciformed life of Jesus. And, and it's what our other heroes suggest that we do. I remember Dr. Martin Luther King's speech. Uh, I read it. I remember reading it. I wasn't around to hear it. But, but I remember reading it. It was the speech, Loving Your Enemies. And he said, now let me hasten to say that Jesus was very serious when he gave his command. He wasn't playing He realized that it's hard to love your enemies. He realized that it's difficult to love those persons who seek to defeat you, those persons who say evil things about you. He realized that it was painfully hard, pressingly hard, but he wasn't playing. And I've been thinking about the people that I know, the people that I've got their names written down in this book. And I've tried to put myself in their shoes this week. It's difficult For a young black man who's been pulled over time and time and time again to pray for police officers. It's difficult for a Hispanic uh, family to pray for leaders that use racist rhetoric. It's difficult for a man or a woman to pray for a judge that hasn't acted fair in a custody case. It's difficult for a student to pray for a teacher that's just a jerk. It's difficult for a person who has reported workplace bullying to pray for a boss that ignores the report. It's difficult for a man to pray for a boss that he doesn't respect. It's difficult to pray for those in authority. As I was writing this sermon, I I wrote down, as I prepared for the sermon, I wrote down all the names and the positions of people that have authority and influence. I, I think I have a picture of it. I, dre- I draw weird pictures and other things like that. It's all over the place. They include leaders and presidents of governments and organizations. They include law enforcement and churches. It includes leaders and churches, parents, grad- grandparents, judges, settling court cases, coaches, civic leaders, district and general superintendents, bishops, as well as a host of other people. And in some ways, I've prayed against them, but in most cases, I haven't prayed for them at all because it's quite difficult to pray for your enemy or it's quite difficult to pray for those that you disagree with. I've recognized that the church has a difficult time praying for those who are in leadership, whether it's politics or church or or workplaces and organizations or whatever the case may be. I mean, I don't know very many churches that that pray for... I've heard some that pray for Donald Trump and Mike Pence and guys like Brent Kavanaugh. 
And, and they'll pray for other justices, but when praying for our enemies, we pray for Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Bashir al-Assad, and others. And should we pray for them? I mean, we've got to ask ourselves the question, are these men any worse or any better than Caesar Nero, who fed Christians to the lions, and whom Paul prayed for? Do we believe that God's grace is for everyone, even those we don't care for? And do we believe that a great price was paid for our benefit and for the benefit of those who have authority over us? Now, when I study for the scripture, when I study for the sermon, I read multiple versions of the scriptures. And maybe you don't know this, but the scriptures were not written in English. Uh, in fact, they were. The New Testament was written in Greek, with uh, with some parts of Aramaic. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So I'm not good, very good at Hebrew or Greek. So I will look at multiple translations as they work into their way into English. And, and I've looked at multiple translations of this same passage that we've read, and I found, it, I, I found it quite interesting. Because the new international version seems to emphasize that praying for those in authority is for their good. But if you look at a closer reading of some other translations, like the new revised standard version, which is actually a better, more accurate translation... And then when you look at the paraphrases like the one we read in worship or a paraphrase like the message, it seems that these translations seem to say more accurately that praying for those in authority is not as much for their good as it is for our good. In other words, when we pray from top to bottom, we're the ones who get saved from top to bottom. This week, I was uh, invited to preach in a series of worship services at my alma mater, Olivet Nazarene University. I've, I've got a picture. I, I was at the university, and I was at the college church there on ca- campus, and they have a partnership, uh, and they share uh, this event. So I, I preached eight services in four days, one service in the morning, and then one service in the evening, one service in the chapel, that's the lower one right there, and then one service at the church. Both of these places have been quite significant to me, especially the church. Uh, it, is the, it is the place where Kimberly Campbell and my wife Holly were both raised. Uh, Keith and Kimberly got married there. So did Holly and I. I was baptized in this church. There were a million things that went on. We got to be a part of our, uh, my father-in-law's funeral. And also I got to be a part of officiating my granddad's funeral because he lived there and attended this church. So it's a significant and sacred place. Now, for most, of, uh, for most of my ministry, I've told students as, as, they've, as they leave for college, and, and I've been telling my own son this because he leaves next year, pass the Kleenex forward, please, but I tell them this, college is the best time of your life, and most have heard this, but they're, they're usually surprised when I add, and it's also the worst time of your life. Never mind trying to figure out how to move into the adult world or get class on time or, you know, pass your labs or how you go through breakups. But it becomes the worst because for many college students, college is that first time in a person's life when they're completely vulnerable to the misuse of power and they don't know what to do with it. 
Now, I've never talked about this in a sermon before, and I've barely talked about it ever, mostly because I haven't wanted to wade through it, but also because it was so long ago, and others have experienced the misuse of power in ways that I couldn't ever dream. I I mean, my life has been so easy compared to some. My situation in college was compared, is, is so small compared to what others would ha- have, to have to deal with. But, but I think that maybe this would be an appropriate time. So without going through all the details, I'll just say this. In my junior year at Olivet Nazarene University, I served the university as a resident advisor in a dorm, and I was accused of some actions that were racist and prejudiced that I did not do. I was accused... And then, in kind of an unofficial way, I was investigated, and that hurt a whole lot. And then, when it was all done, instead of the administration kind of cleaning things up, my, my reputation was left out there to dry. I just felt like I was hanging out there. So you know I was not accused by the students on my floor, which was an incredibly diverse floor. I was actually accused by a faculty member, And maybe one of the most influential people on campus at that time. And it was hard. I remember going home during Christmas break uh, in the middle of my junior year and wondering if I should go back. Uh, Holly and I were dating seriously, but I didn't know if I could stay there. I had given up an opportunity to swim competitively at the Division I level to attend this school. And I felt like I had given up so much, so I considered transferring and I, it, it's still hard. I don't, I don't have insights or words for what had happened. And I, I couldn't put them together even when I came home that Christmas break. But my grandparents were at our house. And, and I was talking to my, my parents about this. And, and my papa put into words what was so true for my situation. He said, Columbus. He called me Christopher Columbus. He was 6'4 and had a huge voice. Columbus, the playing field is uneven. It, it, That's exactly what it felt. I was under the hand of authority that I didn't know how to get out of. That was 20 years ago. My reunion is coming up 20 years next month. But this week, on Tuesday evening, I was preaching a sermon that I preached here before on authority and the misuse of power, and I I found that I was preaching to myself. I was talking about the life of King David. It was a sermon that I preached last summer. And it's a story whereby, God, whereby David wants to, to build God a house. He's going to do something good for God. He's going to build God a temple only to find out that, that, David, that, excuse me, that God wants to build David a house. And a house, only, only what God meant by house is he wanted to build David a family. Now, I'm preaching in this place. There's been a, a place of sacredness, a place of joy, and also a place of hurt. And, and I called those students to look around at the family that was sitting next to them. And then I invited them at the end of the sermon, at the end of the service, to respond. I said, you need to sing with gratitude. And then I invited them to say to someone next to them, I am so glad we are part of the same family. Well, as the musicians came to lead in song, I went to sit down and I went to sit in there. And right there was one of my best friends in the entire world, Mark Holcomb. And I just turned to him and I said, I'm so glad we're part of the same family. 
And then sitting next to him was the pastor of college church. And I looked at him and I looked at his wife and I said, I'm so, I'm so glad we're part of the same family. And then I turned to all the students that were behind me and I stood up and I started to high five them and to hug them. And I said, I didn't even know them. I'm so glad we are part of the same family. And then I began to realize that there, there down the row was the college president. And so I walked up to him. He was the college president at the time when these events happened. And before I could say it, he hugged me. And together at the same time, we said, I'm so glad we are part of the same family. And then I turned to his wife and she hugged me. I'm so glad we are part of the same family. And then it wasn't just him, but then, and then there was the VP of development and, and he was there when I was there and and I was able to grab, and he grabbed me, and I said, I'm so glad we're a part of the same family. And then I began to see their spouses, and I began to see, the, I saw the dean of students, to which I got to say, I'm so glad we're a part of the same family. These were the people that had represented the authority that had hurt me so bad as a young, as a young person. But when I went to hug them, yes, Chris Pollock will hug when he is moved to do so. I, I just, <laughs> I was just... So glad that we were a part of the same family. And there was a freedom and a healing that I did not know or realized that I needed. It was like I was free for the first time in 20 years. And that's the feeling that I have now. I get to pray prayers of gratitude. And I'm so grateful you know, this week I got to meet with and share meals in a private setting with each one of them. And we were human. And in a remarkable way, with each one of them, I, it was strange for me. I served as their pastor. I was with them and, and I prayed with them and I heard their concerns and their fears and their burdens. And now guess what? All of those people are named now in my prayer book. You know, the one that is only for me and God to see. This is what Paul instructs us to do. Not just because it is for their good. But when we pray for those in authority, it is for our good. Even if it takes a long time to get there. The invitation starts now. And I've gotten to discover that when I pray from top to bottom, I get saved from top to bottom. So here's what I'd like us to do. I want you to think about the person who is an authority figure in your life. Could be a, a, a boss or it could be a political official. It could be somebody else. I don't know. You know who that is. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray for them before we have a family meal at the Lord's table. So would you, uh, would you pray with me? So God, our Father, Christ, our brother, the Spirit, our mother. Paul's words are hard, and yet Paul's words are gospel, which means that it is good for us. Many of us have experienced hurt from people who were in positions of authority. Many of us have, have places where we just can't go back. Many of us have memories that are hard to get over. And so we don't know what to do except for start with these words. God, 
Help us to pray. These are the words that the disciples actually asked Jesus. Would you teach us to pray? Would you help us to pray? And I will confess that I have not been good at this, but I also confess that as you've worked miraculously even in my own life and brought healing and freedom so that I might be able to pray, joys, uh, pray prayers of gratitude and joy, that you would help my friends here do the very same. Would you give us power that is beyond ourselves to do this work is hard, but what is good news for us is that Jesus reminds us that the Spirit is for the weak need, the ones that can't do it on their own. And it is those that the Spirit fills to be witnesses of good news and to bear that witness in the lives of others. So in just a moment, we're going to come to the family table, not because we set it, because you set it for us. And so we come hoping for a new future, and we come anticipating that you indeed will change us as we pray in your way. This is what we hope for, and this is what we pray together in the strong and the powerful name of the one who can help us. Amen.